So last week we started a series called At the Mountain. It was, uh, last week the topic was God preparing his people to receive the Ten Commandments. And this week we're going to look at the Ten Commandments in series. I told a few friends this past week that, um, you know, I'm preaching and yeah, it's coming along and I'm preaching on the Ten Commandments. And ironically, they all said about the same thing. They said, are you preaching on all of them? I said, yeah, I'm preaching on all of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have this um, weight, even in our culture, though we may not follow them perfectly as a culture. I mean, that's a, that's a, we're pretty far from that idea. And yet they still appear, they have their own power, even on their own. And yet um, the story of God that surrounds Israel is where he brought the Ten Commandments to life for the first time. That's what we're going to look at today is the story that it appears in. If I say thou shalt not, you probably know that I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, the King James Version, thou shalt not. And for the most part, the Ten Commandments are given as a prohibition, what not to do as you relate to God and the earth. Um, I've been thinking about it this week. You know, why would God give a um, to-not-to-do list as sort of this, this pinnacle situation where he is speaking directly to God's people. Moses has kind of brought the people to the foot of the mountain. He's gotten them there, and um, God's set this boundary. But Scripture, several places say that the, the Ten Commandments is what the Lord spoke directly to the people. But what's with the um, prohibition? What's with the instruction not to do it? I think that one of the thoughts I've had is that Israel is this wee little nation, right? They, um, they don't know what it is yet to live um, outside of slavery. They've just been released from slavery. They're in the wilderness. They're going to spend some time there getting ready to go into the promised land that God was bringing them into. Um, and yet they're this little nation that has... Um, is, is not even, like, uh, grown up yet. And I, I've wondered, you know, we, we tell a young child, don't touch that plug, you'll get shocked. And that's, we all accept the fact that that's a good thing to tell a young child. Um, we don't necessarily need them to understand the intricacies of electrical power or how it's getting from here to there. That's quite mysterious in and of itself. Um, but what we do need to know is that there is a shock there should they come near it. And even more than that, I've, I've actually been wondering, um, is, this, is this the best language that Israel would understand at this point? I mean, they have been in slavery for such a long time that they certainly know what not to do. That's what they've been trained and raised up to know. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to own that. You have to do this. And they've been kind of living within these boundaries of slavery. And at times I wonder if the list is given to a people that's emerging with new freedom. And it's in a language that they can understand. So we're going to do our best today to look at each one in context of that story. And before we even uh, mention the first commandment, there's a couple of things that happen in the text. The first verse of chapter 20 says that, and God spoke. 
And God spoke all these words. Where have you heard that phrase, and God said, or and God spoke before in the storyline of Scripture? It was at the beginning in Genesis 1-3, the same phrase, and God spoke. So these are the words of God speaking um, the covenant. And the Lord does not begin his statement to the nation of Israel with what we call the first commandment. He actually says something different. He says, I am the Lord, your God. He shared his personal name with them. Lord, there is Yahweh. It's the personal name for God. I am your God. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, is what he said. And then he says, remember this. It was the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. Um, Israel was being released from this land. It says that, God brought them out of the house of slavery. I love that picture that God is bringing them out of this house and he's taking them into and preparing for them a new house. Uh, I was um, reflecting on this movie that I really like called The Truman Show. It's, it's a good movie. I would recommend it. It's from 1998. Jim Carrey plays Truman, who is this character, the central figure in the movie. Truman... Uh, is born into a movie set, a TV show. And the TV show is cast out to the world constantly, day and night, hour by hour. And it is all focused on Truman's life. He is always on camera and he doesn't know it. All his family and his friends know it. And over time, Truman grows up and he's this kind of cast as this innocent guy but he um, figures life out as he goes, and he, and he realizes something's not right. And constantly people are pounding fear into him, the fear of flying, the fear of getting on a boat, the fear of going outside of your house, your home. And it's really funny. Every so often they'll just pop in with these commercials, which I think is so clever. Um, but the movie ends with uh, Truman deciding that there's got to be freedom beyond this land, this house that I know. And he goes, his courage takes him to the edge, and he's, he's got to cross over the threshold. And I thought, um, this, is, this is, might be what it's like for the nation of Israel, that all they've ever known is this house of slavery. And, and it, it kind of explains maybe why they would have grumbled three days later, like, oh, take us back. A week and a half later, they grumble again, take us back. And now two and a half months later, here they are at the mountain of God, and they've said, all that, the, all that you say, Lord, we will do. And they've agreed to this covenant. And this is, this is the Ten Commandments. I think this um, brings us to a formative point. If this were a one-point sermon, this would be my point, but we're going to have like ten sub-points <laughs> in a few seconds, but... Um, the main point is that salvation and freedom come before the Ten Commandments. Before Israel receives the law, the Torah, the instruction of God, they receive freedom from slavery. I mean, that's a beautiful picture and the storyline that we find the Ten Commandments in. We think that they have like fallen from the sky, that these two plaques show up, they're engraved with the hand of God. And they just show up. 
But what we forget is that they show up. It's been a whole book of Genesis and now 20 chapters of Exodus that are all narrative. And we also call this the law, the instruction. Um, Before God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, that he gave them himself, his name. They gave them a mediator and Moses. He gave them an invitation to covenant relationship with himself. And he also um, gave them freedom from slavery. It's quite a comprehensive list to precede the Ten Commandments. And it's here that I would say a good reminder is that the Ten Commandments were never given as a means or a way of achieving salvation. They certainly have their conditions. uh, Last week we talked about checking the box of terms and conditions in life and how Israel is entering into this covenant relationship. So yeah, their obedience um, actually matters in this new relationship with the Lord. But their salvation came before it. And they've been invited into relationship first. And it's in this relationship that now uh, obedience matters. So God's just saying, you know what? You know what drives obedience is all these things. Your freedom. Your freedom. You've been set free. This is what drives our obedience. Your love for me, for knowing my name. That's what the Lord is saying. So, we're going to look at them. That's, like I said, that's my main point there. But you still have to listen. (laughs) We're going to make it through these Ten Commandments. Um, It's just a little factoid. The Jewish tradition treats the first commandment as this. I am the Lord your God. So they they recognize, they hold that together maybe a little bit differently than we do. Um, Catholicism, the Jewish tradition even Eastern Orthodox and our Protestant tradition, all number, there's just minor nuances in the way the Ten Commandments are numbered, um, but the holistic meaning doesn't change. And so as we look at them, we're going to look at the first four, which um, relate to this vertical relationship with God, and the last six relate more to a horizontal relationship with others, with our neighbor, with our families, And we're going to look at it that way. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Huh, the Lord said this directly. You shall have no other gods before me. Did the Lord, was he implying that there were other gods? I think the Lord was recognizing that Israel lived in a land that had many gods. And this was was the reality of their life. We also know from Scripture that there is one Lord, one God, and no other. So the Lord is not saying that there are lots of gods like me and just put me first. What he is saying is, I am Yahweh, the Lord, have no other gods or Elohims, which is just kind of the generic name for God, have no other lords or gods before me. I'm your only Lord. Psalm 86.10 says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And if you Google that, you'll just find lots of other passages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that indicate God's singular nature um, in himself. 
But today we live in a culture where um, we have many masters, many lords, many places of leadership and authority. Um, It could be silly things like healthy living or just personal preference that we're given mass amount of freedom in our culture. You can actually insert anything that you want in this land of freedom um, in the place, the rightful place of God. So God not only was instilling in them this kind of new way of freedom in a culture that has many gods, but we live in a similar culture today. In Jesus' power, do you, ha- do you live a life free from other masters? Or is there another authority in your life, another place of leadership that is taking and occupying the space that God should? God goes on, you shall not make idols. The language here, again, kind of brings to mind creation. And here, God is talking about us as his creation. He says, you should not carve anything in your likeness or any, in the likeness of anything in the earth, above, below, in the water. Comprehensively, you should not carve for yourself images. And not only that, but you should not bow down to them. I was um, driving to the beach a couple weeks ago, and I just was driving along the middle of New Jersey. It's kind of nice, calm place, pine trees, sandy soil, and a little two-lane road. And I happened to see this house just kind of off in the distance by itself, and I noticed this, what looked like a tree that the top had been chopped off. And as I get closer, I realize that someone had carved a bear this massive, like, grizzly bear thing into um, a tree. And I was, I was impressed. I was just moved. And wow, just what a gift we have to carve. Humanity can carve a bear into a tree. You know, we've been whittling from the beginning. Father's Day is a day where you might give your father a gadget. Maybe some of you have given your fathers a pocket knife, and they've whittled away. Who knows? Um, what's happening here? At the heart of this is that we reflect God's image. Um, We've been given the ability to create and shape things, and that gets us into trouble all the time. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, express our creativity or use our gifts for the Lord, but what it does mean is that um, the root of the danger is not the carving, but the bowing. And there's a trajectory that begins whenever we carve something. It's like temptation comes in. Uh, I love what the prophet Habakkuk said about this. Much later in Israel's story, listen to what he says in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. This is hard to understand, and Pastor John's going to come and shed light on it, and this is soon in the next few weeks, because, you know, here it is. What does Israel go and do? A golden calf. And that's 
that's going to be evaluated. Um, but there's this exchange that happens. Paul talked about it in Romans 1. We've exchanged the glory of God for an image. We've exchanged God's glory for an image. Sometimes I think, well, if God would just say exactly what to do in his audible voice and be very clear about it, very specific, if he would make a list, say, like, add 10 things to the list. I have 10 fingers. I could keep track of that. If he just gave me that, then everything would be perfect. It would be so easy then. I would just, I would know exactly what to do. And yet, God actually did that in the life of Israel. And right away, they fall away. Because there's this exchange that happens in our hearts. I was in Marshalls this past week. I I like Marshalls. I apologize for that. But um, I was in Marshalls, and I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. Right in front of me, in like the outdoor section, was this massive stone Buddha. I mean, it was enormous. It was impressive. It was, um, it, it caught my attention and my eye, especially because I was looking at this text. But I, I just was amazed. There it is, a, a statue of Buddha in Marshalls. And we just, I, I didn't even care. Like, I wasn't even that offended by it. And I looked at that thing, and I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. So I went to the back of it, the back of its head. He had a little Marshall's price tag. He did. There's a price. It was $499.99. No exaggeration there. And that was like the Marshall's discounted price, too. So I mean, that was a good deal, I guess, somewhere along the way. But today, you know, we live in a culture that easily exchanges, exchanges and inserts many things for the place that God only and God alone should be alive. Um, in Jesus' power, do you live a life free from idols? Is there something in your life that you've equated with God or allowed to take his place? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This goes back to what I said earlier. God has shared his personal name. Yahweh is um, what was revealed to Moses In Exodus chapter 3, the Lord said, I am who I am. Yahweh is a mysterious word. You know, it could mean causes to be, the one who is. The Lord certainly has done that. But more than that, it's the personal name of God. And we, in our culture, we, um, I I shouldn't say we, but I should say the world, very freely, it's subtle, very freely connect something with holy that's something with, that's dirty, profane, or earthly. So we'll take a word like God or holy, and next to it, we'll put a word that talks about um, poop or something that should be damned. And there's just total freedom in our culture to do these things, to connect the holiness of God with the um, abomination and, and evil things. And God was reminding the people from the culture that they were coming um, that they needed to separate the holy from the 
um, unholy or the unclean and the abominable. We talked a little bit about that last week. But here it is in this commandment. Um, I think part of this is that it was Israel's mission to not only protect and not use the Lord's name in vain, but to um, express the name of the Lord to the world. How else uh, would they do this? They were called to be a holy nation, a priesthood, uh, a kingdom of priests that would um, allow God's name to be known in all the earth. That was what God had invited them into. The fourth commandment is the first one that's stated in the positive. And it says um, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. This is, like I said, the first kind of positive spin on the Ten Commandments. Just a couple chapters earlier in Exodus 16, God had provided manna for the people of God. And they were instructed to gather this every day. This was their new work in the wilderness. And um, on the, as they got toward the end of the week, um, they were reminded to collect twice as much as they went into the beginning of the week, the Sabbath. And uh, some of them, when they first started happening, they actually gathered more than they could eat in one day. And it spoiled, like, overnight. But miraculously, when it came to the Sabbath, they were instructed to uh, gather twice as much that day. And it saved, unlike all the other week, uh, other days. And they were instructed to remember and to protect God's holiness in their culture. That's what's at the heart of Sabbath. In light of Christ, there seems to be freedom in continued practice of the Sabbath. Um, Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and he was criticized for it. He, in, in Hebrews, it talks about how we need to have a reminder of, of the Sabbath principle in our lives. And Paul said that the Sabbath is a shadow, but that in Jesus is the substance. So the Sabbath is a shadow, and it's a way to remember for Israel um, about God's holiness and what he's done. Today, we live in a culture that treats the weekends as my time. This is me time. I actually get two days in our culture, right? And we've lost that concept of God's holiness, a holy day in our week. In Jesus' power, how can you live in a way that respects God's principle of Sabbath rest? And how can you protect a weekly space to remember God and his holy way of life in your life? Could this be something that God is inviting you um, to focus on? Number five, honor your father and your mother. Paul said that this is the first commandment with a promise. So I'll, I'll speak to the children in the room. Um, honor your father and mother is, is an invitation for children. I, one thing I really like about this is that it enables young people to um, keep the way of the Lord. And it, it actually puts one of the commandments on children. And that makes me as a parent actually step back. Whoa, you mean my children need to honor their parents, their father and their mother? Am I setting them up to do that? So this is an important um, way that the, the law now goes horizontal, begins in the families, and it, it goes out to the neighbors. 
Today we live in a culture where children regularly disrespect their parents. Maybe they haven't been set up with that concept. It's, it's, it's a challenging one to teach your children, certainly. Um, in Jesus' power, what can you, what can we all do to honor our parents? Here's one for if my kids were here. <laughs> when they call you for dinner, can you respond more quickly? <laughs> it's funny. Um, the next three commandments kind of just fall without any kind of uh, commentary. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. The, the commandments start to interact with their surroundings. Moses was a murderer. In Exodus chapter 2, he struck down an Egyptian. And the next day, two Hebrews uh, were fighting, and they were just you know, starting to get into altercation. Moses said, don't slay one another. Don't uh, attack one another. And one of the Hebrew men said, well, who made you our prince and our judge? We saw what you did. And it said that uh, Moses was afraid. Actually, that's what sent him running. The Hebrew word here for murder is literally manslaughter. And it carries with it the protection of life. This is the first commandment that's actually against the law so far in our culture. I mean, you can maybe work your way into some of the other ones so far that I've said, that some roundabout way, but this is more explicit. Jesus goes further with this. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say everyone who is angry with his brother will be responsible to judgment. Today we live in a culture that has little regard for anger. And in Jesus' power, do you live a life free from anger? toward your fellow neighbors. You shall not commit adultery assumes the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage is one of the earthly examples of how we um, represent the unity that we have with God. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, the great mystery is not that a husband and wife can become one. I mean, that's mysterious. But the greater mystery is that Jesus and the church are becoming one. And... Here it is, much early on in a very pagan culture coming out of it. God is protecting marriage. He said, you shall not commit adultery. It, that, that statement assumes marriage. And Jesus took this commandment further. He said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. Well, I say everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Today we live in a culture that has a very low view of sexuality, men and women, marriage, protecting that. In Jesus' power, what can you do to protect how you view the opposite sex? And if you're married or hope to be, how can you better protect your marriage vows? You shall not steal. Ownership was a new idea for the nation of Israel, so I'll take it back to the context um, the fact that God had promised them land, a promised land, was maybe more than they could comprehend in the wilderness. And he says, do not steal. I think of this as, as um, possessions for them. For the first time now, they could have their own possessions coming out of slavery. And they had to navigate this. Today, we um, treat possessions with paramount importance in our culture. Possessions are very important to us. We hold tightly 
onto them sometimes. Stealing is still bad, but I'd say it's rooted in the fact that we're allowed to own a lot of things, and we should have freedom in that. It's kind of the feeling. In Jesus' power, do you live a life that models godly ownership in your life when it comes to possessions? Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What Egypt had done to them all this time, they were not to do back. Today, we live in a culture that regularly slanders and gossips. In Jesus' power, how can you protect others' reputation in a way that pleases God? We're not pleasing people, but we have a responsibility to God in this, to not bear false witness. This this was written to... um, courts of justice, and it's still important today. The last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's dot, dot, dot. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. It's funny that it would start that way. You should not covet your neighbor's wife, anything. He actually like starts to kind of split it out. Okay, if he has an ox, not, shouldn't covet that. If he has a donkey, Shouldn't covet that. It's like, <laughs> you see what's happening there? Anything that your neighbor has, you should not covet. This is the first commandment or the, the, the most obvious commandment that turns toward the heart in, in the way that it's even stated. Coveting is um, hard to keep track of in the world. I mean, how would you uh, hold somebody accountable for coveting in a court of law? You know, there's probably ways, but... It's really a matter of the heart more than anything. Israel was in slavery for 400 years. Imagine what 400 years of slavery would do to your concept of coveting. Like all they knew was coveting. All they knew was desiring freedom that they didn't have. And God is reminding them that that's still true in this newfound freedom. God needed to provide a picture for the people of Israel. I think as we close, um, these Ten Commandments are describing a way of life that is below the formative way, which is that before God um, expects us to be in covenant relationship with him, he comes close. He comes near. His ho- it, it's amazing how his holiness has to do a lot of the work to draw near to us as his humanity, and yet he does, and then he speaks directly these terms and conditions of the covenant, and um, he enables us through his spirit to live it out. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law and prophets, and they all hang on his um, fulfillment of those In the next few weeks, we're also going to look at this covenant relationship and how it's consecrated with the people. And it's, again, going to point us to Christ, how Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of much of what we're talking about here. Um, But I think it's important to remember that salvation comes before law and that the law is good. The law is the way of God. Thank God that he's um, prescriptive and clear on his expectations of us. 
And thank God that he's enabled us through the Holy Spirit to live it out in a way that brings him glory. And there is much failure in our history, many generations. Even Israel was not able to fulfill maybe what God had um, hoped for them because they're like us. And Jesus came to fulfill that. I want to invite you to stand as I close in prayer and invite the worship team as we close. I want to just encourage you this week to um, remember that God's invitation is one to free you from slavery and bondage and that your response to that is one um, that should not think of the law first, but it should flow um, from a love of God and our obedience should flow from that. So um, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them.